All right. If you have a Bible, go with me to Exodus chapter 3. Uh, Exodus chapter 3. And today we're launching a series uh, that's called Living an Authentic Life. Uh, Living an Authentic Life. And, and uh, it's going to be an eight-part series. But actually this came out of uh, really our church history in, in, in January, actually January 2nd of 1996, uh, my wife, Jerry, <clears throat> came to me and said, um, Pete, I'm quitting the church, and I'm going to another church. Now, she was, we, at that point, we had four small girls, been married seven or eight years. Uh, she was feeling very lonely because I was so busy uh, working. Uh, we were stressed. Um, I was pastoring, senior pastor at New Life Fellowship at that time, and she was trying to get me to listen to her, number one, in our marriage. Secondly, slow down. Wasn't doing that either. And thirdly, resolve some of the conflicts that were going on around our own church. And uh, I didn't like conflict, dreaded conflict, so I didn't do it. And so she was very calm. And after a long time, she finally came to me and, and said, I quit, uh, Pete. And she had my attention. Now, it's a problem when your spouse quits and you're the lead pastor. Always remember that. It's a real big problem. <clears throat> but it unleashed something in me. <clears throat> and God met us in a very significant way. Some of you know the story. And what was unleashed into our midst here at our church and really around the world was something we call today emotionally healthy discipleship. But my whole life, our lives was transformed dramatically. It opened up scripture to us in ways that we'd never seen before uh, and got us on a journey that really is continuing to this day. And so Jerry was pondering this and, and, and for the next 13 years, and she would speak on these quits. Uh, and I said, Jerry, you got to put this down in a book because it's so good and so important because when she quit, then what followed, I quit uh, a number of things so that I could follow Jesus. And so uh, she wrote this book called The Emotionally Healthy Woman, which some of you are familiar with. It was called actually I Quit originally. It was not written for women. It was written actually for everybody, but because... The long story. They ended up titling it that. And, uh, and there's actually eight quits. And each one has a large theology. And the basic thesis is this, that you've got to be able to quit, which doesn't belong to Jesus, so that you can obey, you can choose to say yes to what he has for you in your future. But it requires a quitting in order to choose and to say yes. And so it got broken down into eight quits. And today we're actually going to do the first one, quit being afraid of what other people uh, think. That's today. So uh, let me just read you a paragraph that she wrote. She said it better than I could possibly say it. And it goes like this. Traditionally, the Christian community has not placed much value on quitting. In fact, just the opposite is true. It's endurance and perseverance that we most esteem. For many of us, the notion of quitting is completely foreign. When I was growing up, quitters were considered weak, bad sports and babies. I never quit any of the groups or teams I was a part of. I do remember quitting the Girl Scouts briefly, but I soon rejoined, quitting is not a quality we admire in ourselves or others. The kind of quitting I'm talking about isn't about weakness or giving up in despair. It's about strength and choosing to live in the truth. This requires the death of illusions. It means ceasing to pretend that everything is fine when it is not. Perpetuating illusions is a universal problem in marriages, families, friendships, and workplaces. Tragically, pretending everything is fine uh, when it's not also happens at church, the very place where truth and love are meant to shine most brightly. And so 
this first one, quipping about what other people think, actually informs the rest, but it's incredibly difficult to do. So just think about your life. I'll give you an example just from my own life. When I was a kid, I remember being on Little League Baseball and uh, getting a uniform. But my whole concern in being out in the field at five, six, seven years old was how did I look? And did my mother notice, you know, and that how cute I was, you know, in my uniform? And then I got to middle school and high school and uh, discovered uh, girls and became very concerned. How do I look? My appearance, you know, and do I fit in? And as you know, just the peer pressure of middle school and, and high school. And then, of course, I got to college and then the question of am I smart enough to be here? And not wanting to look dumb. And then ask, you know, was a professor thinking of me and asking questions, being very concerned with what everyone else is thinking about in the room, choosing a major that might be impressive to people. Then, of course, I became a Christian, and then I got to church. It was like, wow, these people seem to know a lot of the Bible. When they pray, they seem to really, like, have a deep voice. I'm going to try that, too, you know, and all that. <laughs> and, uh, and then, of course, in your 30s and 40s, and you enter your career, and you're looking around, and you're saying, well, how am I doing compared to everybody else? Am I, you know, am I, am I getting my own apartment and house? And, and, you know, do I look like I'm being a success? And then you get to your, you know, 50s and 60s, and you're still comparing yourself to how you're doing compared to everybody else. Then, of course, you know, you, you go to retirement, and maybe you move to Florida, and then you're at the, you're at the retirement community and you're looking around and saying, how am I doing in my 80s? You know, how does it look? <laughs> and I tell my wife often, you know, I, I, you know Queens, we're, we're specialists in cemeteries. If you ever look at a map, we're really good on cemeteries. We've got a lot of cemeteries, cemeteries and airports. And, uh, you know, I've got some family buried here in Queens, and, and uh, you know, going to visit them is always a challenge because it's like a labyrinth to find the tombstone, you know. And, uh, and I always say to Jerry, when we leave the city, and I'll see these little cemeteries in New England and, you know, beautiful place. I said, Jerry, I want a room with a view, okay? I want to be at the top of the hill, you know. I don't want people to think I'm buried. You can't even find me, like, lost. You can, I'm, I'm going to be with a, not buried but with a nice tombstone overlooking a valley or something, you know. <laughs> Don't cremate me. So even in death, you're concerned what other people think. <laughs> so today, we're going to talk about quit being afraid of what other people uh, think. Exodus 3, 1 to 5. Before I actually read the passage, though, uh, I want to, uh, a, a book was released recently called The Happiness Effect. And it's very interesting. They, they did interviews with a large number of students, college students, a massive number, actually, about their habits and their view of social media. And... Uh, it was fascinating what they discovered because a lot of it, it was called, and they call it the happiness effect, how social media is driving a generation to appear perfect at any cost. And uh, so they talk about, all these students, about the, the pressure of the 24-7 social media, of course, and, uh, and they, they'd love to get away from it, but you can't. It's so much part of life. And that how just everyone feels this obligation to, to curate yourself or present this image of yourself like on Facebook or Instagram. And so you're always putting on a happy face, you know, a, a, a you know, fantastic dinner, a fantastic vacation, a, a fantastic outfit. And we basically spend our lives, they, they say, performing. Uh, and we all do. You know, we want to present a better version of ourselves than actually is a reality. You know, we don't put on Facebook, you know, a terrible dinner, terrible night out, you know, terrible outfit I've got, I bought, you know, it doesn't fit. And, and so we don't want to be vulnerable. And it's so much a part of the culture that for most of us, we don't even think about how fear or, cons- not you know, fear, concern of what other people think drives our lives or impacts our lives. And so today we're going to look at uh, Moses because this is a core discipleship issue for all of us in this room. And uh, it is a, if we break through in this, 
all kinds of things basically get unleashed. But if this shackle or, or chain grips us, the degree to which it grips us, the degree to which we find ourselves chained. So we're going to look at Moses in Exodus 3, who's an incredible example of someone under pressure who struggles, but he breaks through. And there's a lot we can learn from him. So here we are. We're going to pick it up in chapter 3 of Exodus, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Now, let me give you a bit of context here, and we'll, we'll expound the passage. Now, for 400 years, the Israelites have been slaves in Egypt, being led by Pharaoh. Now, now just, I want you to try to understand what it'd be like to be if we're here, and our culture is we're all slaves, and we've all been slaves, and our parents, and grandparents, and great-grandparents, since the year 1518. Okay, that, that, that's a long time. It, deep in our bones, our psyche, I mean, that's, that's just who we are. We're just culturally, we're, we're, we're slaves. And they've been worked ruthlessly for 400 years. And Pharaoh, at this point, is considered a god. He's worshipped as divine. And no, no leader has emerged. Nobody's emerged in 400 years to say, hey, this stinks. This has got to change. We've got to get out of here. Uh, and at this point, Moses is born into, uh, you know, this slave culture. And, uh, He's orphaned, and, and uh, he's, he's placed in a basket and put down a river into the Nile River. It's kind of like leaving a, a mother leaving the, uh, a baby in front of the police station or fire department. That's what happened. They put the baby in the river. He gets found by Pharaoh's daughter, gets adopted into the Egyptian family, uh, and basically he grows up in this you know, wealthy family, highly educated. Uh, and at age 40, he tries to help the Israelite people because he's a Jew, but he's also an African, and uh, so he tries to help his people. He kills somebody, loses his temper, um, and he has to flee the country. And he ends up living in Arabia in what's called Midian at the time. And he lives in the desert for the next 40 years, gets married there, and raises a family. So we're picking up the story. He's 80 years old, okay? He's not a young chicken. Um, he, his career has gone nowhere. His education and potential has apparently been wasted. And now at 80, God speaks to him. And uh, God basically says to him, don't be afraid, Moses, of what other people think. And he speaks to him, and he invites him, he calls him to lead. I'm going to call you to lead two to three million people out of this place, of Egypt, into a promised land. And we're going to pick it up. Moses is just going to struggle with this. But uh, you'll notice in verse 3, is the key verse here. Moses, God speaks in verse 3. God, Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. That's the key text here, because Moses makes a choice to turn to God. He, he moves towards the burning bush. He didn't have to, but he does. And once he moves toward God, towards this burning bush, then it says in verse 4, when the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called to him. You've got to catch that. 
So as God sees it, he's turning to him. The Lord then speaks to Moses and calls his name, you know, Moses, Moses. But, but it, it's the beginning now of a huge shift. That his whole life's going to change, and actually millions of people's lives are going to be changed as a result of that movement. But his whole life is actually characterized by moving towards God, moving towards that burning bush. And every time he does, there's a new revelation. God's revealing himself to him. Now, to appreciate, we talk about quit being afraid of what other people think, or for Moses to quit living in fear of what's around him and move towards God and the change that's going to involve, he's got huge obstacles just like us. Now, now imagine this. They're, they're actually behind all these obstacles, just like in your life and my life, are powers and, and principalities. He has a culture of slavery that's been doing this since the year uh, 1518, 400 years, if you put it in today's language. Uh, they have been repressed, uh, they have been oppressed, they have been living an uh, uh, unbearable life under and the most powerful economic and military uh, country the world has ever known up to that point. And Pharaoh was worshipped, everybody worships Pharaoh. And so their, 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 their identity is fused with that of Egypt, with, with Pharaoh. The only comparison I can think of is in uh, Japan during World War II. Uh, one of the great challenges was there was emperor worship. And so the reason folks, the Japanese couldn't stop and they were kamikaze is because it was, you, your, your, your sense of self, your sense of who you are was so tied into the emperor. You were kind of like one, you're, you're fused. And so in the same way, up to this point, in, in, in Moses, everyone's fused with Pharaoh. It's like, you don't have a separate identity apart from Pharaoh. You're, this is it. But God comes to Moses and says, no, no, no. I'm calling your name here. I've got something for you. Uh, but he's got to deal with, he's got to make a choice to go up against Pharaoh. And not only that, he's, he's got a record, a, a prison record. He's, a, he's carrying shame because he killed somebody. And so he had to flee for his life uh, as a fugitive. And so, I mean, every, you know what it's like to go for it. If you've been in prison, you go for an interview, the first thing you want to know is, do you have a felony on your record? You know, check the box. And, you know, Moses has over his head criminal, felon, fugitive for the next 40 years. And um, he's a has-been. I know failure. I don't know, if you, I, I don't know how much you know failure but and have been there. How many of you have blunders or mistakes that you've made in your life that you say, it just... It pursues me wherever I go. And it's always in the back of your mind. Well, Moses is carrying that. There's a big difference between making a mistake and feeling like I am a mistake. That's shame. Moses is, I am a mistake. But God comes to him. Thirdly, his age. He's 80 years old, all right? I mean, he's not a young chicken. For the last 40 years, he's been a shepherd uh, basically a nobody in the backside of a desert. And I can just imagine every birthday, you know, it's 43rd, 45th, 60th birthday, you know, loser, you know, loser, loser, you know, just, you know, I messed up my life, you know, another birthday party. And then, of course, he's got, in a sense, his church, his, his community of the Israelites, where they don't think he can do anything. And they're not, no, nobody is saying, come on, Moses, lead us. No, no, he's like, just stay where you are and, just follow. And so he doesn't have any encouragement coming from fellow believers. And then he's got his family of origin. Remember, he was raised as an Egyptian in Pharaoh's family. And so uh, 
you know, he was adopted, and so for 40 years, that's his family. Our families impact us and, and shape us. And so, like every family, don't rock the boat. Just do what the family does. And, uh, you know, that, that's deep in him. I, I think of my, you know, probably the largest influence on all of us, of course, is our families of origin. And I come from an Italian-American family. My mother put it very simply, you know, if you do this, I, I will kill you. And then, to put guilt on you, I will kill myself, all right? And, and uh, so... You know, Moses has got that pressure on him. And so if we had time and, and, and read through chapter 3 and chapter 4 of, of uh, Exodus, uh, Moses is struggling to, to come out and respond to this invitation from God of quit being afraid of all this you know, and follow me. You know, say yes to me. Make a choice for me because I've got something for you to do in you and through you. And he struggles and it actually climaxes uh, Again, here's Moses. I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. But Moses makes a choice, okay, to move towards, not away from the burning bush. That is God. He makes that choice, and you'll see this come back at the end. But at the end, he gives his final excuse. He says, listen, God, Moses says to the Lord, verse 10, pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. So scholars don't know exactly what it means. He clearly had, had a speech a difficulty. Uh, maybe some scholars think maybe he was just carrying shame. Other scholars think maybe he had a stroke, that he has come on a speech impediment. We don't know exactly, but he's basically saying, God, I, I don't have it. I don't, I don't have the natural, I don't have the ability to do this. And uh, there's probably some young Jew somewhere who's smart, uh, educated, clever, great personality, you know, more, much more qualified than me. Just let them go do it. And the Lord says to him, verse 11, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? You now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. And Moses says, well, pardon your servant, Lord. You know, please send somebody else. And I think it's like how for many of us, we feel the same way. It's like, Lord, I just, I don't have it. Like, you don't know my past, my history. I'm just not, you know, it's just me. And, and the Lord says, I'll be with you. I'll give you what you need. It is all about me in you. You know, trust me. Uh, and, and choose me. I, I, I like this little diagram. I, I pull it out often, and, and it's, uh, it's, it's a way that, you know, over the, over the centuries in church, they've talked about true self and false self, you know, and that inside of you, just like inside of Moses, there's a true you. I'm talking about who you were crafted and created by God to be in your mother's womb. Like, you've got a destiny for you. There's nobody like you on the earth. You really are unrepeatable. And God has you alive at this moment of history because he's got a purpose for you. He's got a plan for you. He's trying to shape you. But there are forces that are put on all of us and through culture and families and all this other stuff that we'll call it the pretend self. And it's like these layers, and Moses got it on him too, they got to come off. And God is peeling a big layer off Moses right now. He says, Moses, there's you, the real Moses in here, you're going to free my people, and I've got something for you to do, and he's got to move into his greatness. And this, you know what this message is about? It's about actually helping you just for a moment discover your own greatness that God's put inside of you, because he really does have something for your life. And uh, so here's the basic principle of the whole uh, text here. The more deeply you're connected to God and his love, the less you need the approval of people, and you can live out your God-given unique life. I'll say it again. The more deeply you're connected to God and his love, the less you need the approval of people, 
uh, and you can live out your God-given unique life. Now, let me, now, now, I'm not just talking about, oh, it could be your career. That's true. Like with Moses, it's a whole career choice. Uh, stepping out and risk that. But it's really, it's everyday life. We're, we're confronted with this. I mean, I, uh, I remember going to the car mechanic years ago and, and, uh, I was, I, I felt like I got overcharged. Like, three times what I should have been charged. And so I'm there and there's lots of people in the, in the room. And he's, the person's busy, the mechanic's busy talking to somebody else. And I really want to say something, but I don't want people to think like I'm a creep, you know, or a complainer. And he's kind of a gruff guy. And so I don't say anything. And I just pay it. Uh, because I don't want to be thought of badly. It's very expensive to be afraid of what other people think. All right. It's very expensive. But my favorite story actually is in uh, the Emotionally Healthy Woman book because I was there when I, we heard it uh, and the names have been changed to protect the innocent, all right? And this happened in another state. Uh, her, we'll call her Joyce. And she's telling about how she, she's a, this woman's a very committed Christian, long-term Bible study leader. Uh, and she was told by a friend to go check out a new hairstylist. And so she goes. And as the woman's cutting her hair, and I, I've not sat in the beauty salon, so it's, you ladies could probably appreciate this. She's getting her hair cut, but she says it's a disaster. I mean, it's going really bad. And so she says nothing, though. She continues to smile and make small talk, you know. And, but inside, she's getting increasingly angry. Uh, and meanwhile, she's praying, oh, God, oh, God, end this torture as soon as possible. Uh, finally, the haircut's finished. And Joyce is so angry because it is as bad as she feared. But she contains it. So what does she do? She thanks the stylist profusely in front of all the customers for this wonderful haircut. And then she tips her double. Double. And I remember saying to her across the table, Joyce, I think something's wrong here, you know, like... Now, I'm not saying that, you know, find your authentic self and just, you know, give it to them. No, I'm not talking about that, all right? We're talking about kindness, loving, you know, asserting yourself in an appropriate way. Um, it's being your authentic self that God has for you, not for you to be blasting off on people. But there was, there was a way to, to speak up to that woman, uh, her stylist, uh, out of an authentic self in Christ. So Moses makes a choice here, okay? And his choice is to go over and see this strange sight, to, to move towards God in that burning bush and not away from God. That, because that's the source of power. God, God is the one who changes us. God's the one who leads us. God's the one who speaks to us. Apart from God, you're not going anywhere, nor am I. But he is the, you know, he's the fountain. I like what Albert Schweitzer said many, many years ago. If you follow Jesus, you will know him. In other words, as you respond to God in the little things, like to every day, today, as you follow him, he reveals himself to you. We find that in John 14, 23. In other words, as you move towards him, he speaks, he leads, he guides. If you don't, you don't hear anything. But we know him as we follow him and as we listen to his voice. And so in the same way, he wants to fold you because his love melts our fear. 
So we have the courage to actually, perfect love casts out fear, and we're able to actually follow him. And in that place, so much of God happens. You see, you get perspective on your life. And if you're like some of me, I, I, you know, I, I can easily go negative as I look at the past. My, my mind just goes right there of all the, oh, uh, what a mess. It's never going to work. And I just, I, I naturally go there. I know many of you do as well. But Moses is able to step back, and he gets God's perspective. Oh, yeah, uh, it looks like my life had, was a mess, but you know what? God was working in me. You know, I was raised an orphan. That's true. Uh, at the same time, I had a great education and a lot of privilege. That is true, too. He's a tricultural person. He's an Arab, being raised there 40 years. He's uh, African, and he's also Jewish. He's got three cultures. Some of you are multicultural as well. It's an incredible gift for the world that we live in that God's given you. But that, but, and if God had not caused Pharaoh to want to kill the babies he would not have been raised up in this privileged household. I mean, all this sovereignty of God, he realized God was working in his life to prepare him. In fact, when he kills somebody, he's, he, Moses has a temper. He, he's, he, he's got, you know, uh, I mean, he, 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 he's got some pride in him early on. That gets broken by his failure. He becomes a very different person. In fact, he's described in Scripture as the meekest man on earth in the book of Numbers. He's been so broken by life He's actually in a place now where God can use him in a way that would not have been possible earlier. He's been emptied. In the same way, God's things have happened to you, family you were born into, maybe you made some decisions, but I'm saying as we surrender ourselves, as we move towards a burning bush, God takes all that and weaves it into something beautiful. Uh, some of you may know the story of Chuck Colson. He was a special counsel to President Nixon, 1969 to 73. This guy had the biggest, most powerful, one of the most powerful jobs in the world at that time. He gets involved in Watergate and ends up in prison. In prison, he turns to the burning bush and becomes a Christian. Here's what he writes. The real legacy of my life was my biggest failure, that I was an ex-convict. My great humiliation being sent to prison was the beginning of God's greatest use of my life. He chose the one experience in which I could not glory for his glory. And if you know anything about the story of Chuck Colson, uh, it's an incredible story how he impacted prisons before he died all across the country. Now, I know some of your stories in this room, and you say, well, God, why did you allow this to happen? And what's going on here? And, I, and uh, you say, you say why, God, why did you give me this? Uh, and I don't, I don't know the answer to all that, but I do know this. Much, much like in my own life, my own family I grew up in. I think even as I became a Christian, I didn't get the kind of discipleship I would have liked or mentoring for years. It seemed like I was making a lot of mistakes that could have been avoided with the right kind of discipleship. God, why didn't you just send a mentor my way or something? And it's true, you can choose to be angry and bitter uh, and blaming everybody, or you can make a choice to move towards a burning bush, get a bit of God's perspective as you trust him, and say, oh my gosh, nothing is wasted in God. One of my favorite stories that I, that I, books I read recently was a book called A Choice by a woman named Edith Egger. And uh, she was actually in the Holocaust. She, she, at 16, she ended up a year in a, in a concentration camp during World War II. And, she, and uh, she writes this book of the age of 89. Uh, and it's called A Choice because she basically realized that everybody has a choice in life. This is what, the meaning of her whole life. That as things come into your life, as things happen, we have a choice of what we do with that. And she basically, she, she calls it, I'll just read you one quote here. She goes, suffering, for example, is inevitable and universal. But how we respond to suffering differs. 
You can live in the prison of your past or let the past be the springboard that helps you reach the life you want now. We can choose to be our own jailer or choose to be free. And she herself had a life in this PhD in therapy. She ends up helping so many people around the world. It's just actually phenomenal. Even writing a book at 8990, I was like in absolute awe. But she kept driving home that you have a choice. Moses has a choice to move towards the bush and not away from it. Because the more you move to God, the more deeply you're connected to God and his love, the more free you are, uh, the less you need the approval of people, and you can actually live out your God-given life. But friends, this is hard. This is, this is the crucible. This, is, this is, can be painful. And you look at Moses' life. There was a struggle to break free, but he broke free in resurrection. Listen, we have nobody like you. Nobody on the face of the earth. And God's goal for you is increasing freedom each step of the way. So here's what I want to, I believe God's invitation is for us here today. Number one is this. Just take notes on yourself this week. Just take some notes and say, did I act or speak in ways today to get the approval of the person in front of me or to avoid their disapproval? In other words, can you just think of even the last few days of, of people maybe you were with or situations you were in a spouse, a friend, a co-worker, uh, a parent, did you, were you so concerned about what they think that you perhaps weren't honest? I'm not talking about being nasty. I'm talking about lying never belongs to the kingdom of God. But were you able to be honest or was your behavior determined by what other people think? That's number one. But number two is this. Uh, invitation is to move towards, not away from the burning bush that is God. Listen, Jesus is our best example. I mean, Jesus did not listen to the voices of the disciples, even his own family, the crowds, the religious leaders, and he, he listened to the Father's voice as he stayed connected to the Father, and he was able to obviously save us and save the world, and we follow this crucified Jesus who's risen from the dead. And so this invitation, equipping afraid of what people think, this is core to discipleship. So we can follow his voice and do what he's given us to do and become who he's uh, called us to become. But to do this, moving towards him, uh, you need some silence, that is outer and inner silence, to quiet all those voices out there. And of course you need scripture. We need the scriptures to guide us as God speaks to us through them. And uh, there's no getting around that. I mean, Moses was alone when he received this you know, the burning bush. Jacob was alone when he wrestled with an angel. Joshua was alone when he had a vision of, of God. Isaiah was alone when he got his commission. Paul was alone in the Arabian desert three years. I mean, I got Mary was alone when the angel appeared to her. There is no substitute for times of aloneness. And then, of course, with Scripture, and as God wants to, as you move toward him, he's going to speak to you. He's going to make himself known to you. Listen, I'm growing. I've been in this a while. I'm, I am growing in this basic principle of, okay, moving towards a burning bush and not being afraid of what people think, even at my age at this point, it's not just something you do in your teenage years. It is that lifelong journey with Jesus. Uh, and it's courageous. And, and so, again, we follow Christ. But let, let, me, let me close with a little story here. Um, and it comes from Homer's uh, the, the, uh, the Odyssey. It's one of the fam most famous stories in, in Western civilization. And uh, there's this guy, they're going through this, uh, we'll call a channel, and there's these sirens, they're called, on the right and the left on the cliffs, and they're temptations to shipwreck the whole ship. 
and their temptations in life. And so what Odysseus does is he ties himself to the, the mass. So he's not tempted by the music he hears to follow the temptations. We'll call it fear of what other people think and, and crash his life. So he, he, he ties himself to the mass. You'll see him tied. He puts uh, wax in his ear so he can't hear anything. And so by sheer force of will, he resists the temptations and get through, gets through it. All right. Now, that is not the way you're going to get free. Okay. There's a lot of voices screaming to your life. Do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that. Everyone's got a plan for your life, don't they? But God's got a plan for your life and a destiny for your life. Uh, there's another great Greek story, and uh, it's by J- it's on Jason, and it's called The Adventure of the Argonauts. And he does a different strategy. He's going through the same temptations. And the sirens, the, the, the voices are screaming at him, again, to, to temptation to go another path and get shipwrecked. But what he does is he calls on the great God of music for the music of heaven. And what he does is he wants to hear the music. He calls on this other great God. The music of heaven comes, and it's so powerful that he, he, doesn't, he almost barely heals, hears the temptation of sirens calling him to the right or to the left to shipwreck his life, and he follows the greater song. And what I want to invite you here as we close as friends, is to the great song of God's got a plan for your life. He's got a purpose for your life, and it's not you in sheer self-will. It's listening, turning towards the burning bush and listening to God's voice for your life. And his great story that he came and died and rose from the dead for you. And he is, he wants you to go forward with that great story that your life fits into his big, his big story. Your life's as important as Moses' life, as anybody's life. Again, you're unrepeatable. We've got nobody like you on the whole planet right now. And his voice is speaking to you. I, I love what one poet said. He goes, to live unfaithfully to yourself is to cause other people great damage. To live unfaithfully to your life is to actually cause other people great damage. So worship team, come on forward. So I want to invite you as one practical application is in the next week, um, I want to encourage you, you know, if you don't have this book, Emotional Like the Woman, sorry, men, it's called woman. Get it on Kindle, all right? I mean, don't worry about it. And I would get the workbook, and I would encourage you on your own at home, just go through each of the topics that's going to be preached the next eight weeks and deepen yourself in it with God during during the week. So let's just take a moment right now. Let me just invite you to close your eyes for a second. And let me invite you to do a little inventory of how much of your life, to what degree, are the voices of other people and concern or fear of what other people think pulling you in directions that may not be what God has for you. And ask God maybe to show you one or two areas. And if you're not, if you've not been moving towards the burning bush, towards God, or you've been sloppy with it, you're in, you're out, just right now say, oh God, help me. Oh Lord, I look to you now. Lord, help me. And just with your, with your hands kind of up 
towards heaven to say, yes, God. Yes, Lord. And every time Moses turned toward that burning bush, he heard the voice, Moses, Moses. And the Lord sees you today and says, surely, surely, Dave, Dave, he speaks your name. Before we sing, I want to invite you to look up at the screen there. And there's, a, there's that prayer of confession. It comes in the Book of Common Prayer. We, we pray it at communion. It's a very famous prayer. It's been around 500 years. And I just... I want all of us to pray corporately. Because those voices, that, that fear of people and what other people think, some of us, it's even our dead parents. It's like that pulls us into areas we would never even go. Because we don't even think about it. We're just so unaware of it. And so we just want to make a corporate confession here together. It's like, Lord, cleanse us of that. You know, and free us. So let's pray it out loud together. Ready? We have sinned against you through our own faults. In thought, in word, in deed. And what we've done and in what we've left undone. For the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us all our offenses and grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen. Let's all stand, everybody.
Psalm, Psalm 27. This was David's prayer. We just sang it. You know, back to God. And he was surrounded by enemies. So he can invade Jerusalem and crush him. And he says, the Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? You know, whom shall I fear? And he just kept returning back to that burning bush, getting fresh revelation and able to really break through and pioneer a life that we'd never seen in a king before. So as we close here, I want to invite you, ushers, to come forward. I mean, uh, prayer teams come forward as well as the communion table. We've got a Lord's table over here to your right, your left, to eat and drink of Jesus here as we close. And we've got some prayer teams. Uh, this, this, friends, is a supernatural life. This is not one you're going to live in your own strength, making it happen, tying yourself to the mast of a ship uh, or self-effort. Uh, this comes out of relationship with the living God you know, in Jesus. This, this is a life of continually moving towards God in that burning bush. And I want to invite you to do it like today, like again, every day, today, now. Uh, and again, whether it's your first time, you're here, uh, it's your time. Like, okay, he's speaking your name. You want to come forward and, and receive Christ who died for you and rose again. Uh, he died in our place. That's why we're here. That's the miracle today, everybody. Because of the crucifixion and resurrection, we're in this room all by grace. And so now we want to we want to move out and live as free men and women, not slaves any longer. And that your life and my life actually is a gift to the world around us. So all the teams are going to be here. I want to invite you to put your hands up like this towards heaven and receive a blessing as we close. Because God sees you as we've sung and God loves you. He pursues you. He, he says your name over you. If you'll just move towards him, you will know him. You'll hear him. He'll reveal himself to you. You can trust in him as you wait. So may the Lord bless you. And may the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you. And may God pour out by the Holy Spirit his love into the container of your being, body and soul. May he fill you to overflowing. And may his love, his validation of you, his affirmation of you so free you that it would drive fear out. And you, like Moses, might have the courage to get up and go in the new path that he's got for you. And that you could trust in him even when you can't see where it's all going. So be blessed and receive the hand of God on you now as you leave this place. And may you be a gift as a result to those you touch today and all this week. And I pray this in Jesus' name and everybody said, Amen. Thank you, everybody.